What happened on this day affected most, if not everyone in this room? Indirectly, in one way or the other, we were all impacted by the events that unfolded from this day. It all began at around 2.30 in the afternoon UK time, which was early morning New York time. I can see many people scratching their heads thinking, what happened on this day? In the press, news broke out that one of America's oldest and largest banks had just filed for bankruptcy. And the news that followed caused even more panic because the government, contrary to what everyone expected, had decided that we are not going to save this bank. So the markets went into a frenzy. Investors began to sell all that they owned. And in a matter of hours, just hours, the top 100 companies in the UK lost a combined fortune of £40 billion. Now, to put £40 billion into context, £40 billion could feed everyone in the United Kingdom for a whole month, and we'll still have some money left over. Or actually, you could buy four loaves of bread over the period of a month for every single human being in the entire world. That's a lot of money and a lot of money to lose in just a few hours. What happened on this date is commonly known as the 2008 financial crisis. So well done those who saw the date and immediately guessed correctly. But you'll be pleased, I'm sure, to hear that my message this morning is in a deep study into the causes and effects of the financial crisis. But I think emerging from the financial crisis were a number of important lessons and, and certainly one that I do want to draw across this morning. As, as the dust had settled and banks began to tell their story of what exactly they did to survive, a common phrase, a common strapline began to emerge in their stories and how they described it. That strap line was three words, back to basics. Each organization talked about how they went back to basics. Back to basics is a simple yet effective strategy that they employed that caused them to remember what exactly they were good at, to simplify their strategy and how they went about things, and to build everything focused on just those core things. Now, for some businesses, it actually meant pulling and coming out of countries that they used to operate in and just focusing back on just the few that they understood. So there is one organization in particular that went from operating in 32 countries to just six in 24 months. That was how radical they took the approach and they saw the importance of that. Others just sold of businesses that may have been making the money, but actually when they looked back, was not aligned to their core principle and to their core approach. So in order to protect themselves from going out of business, in order to position themselves just to, just to survive and to, put the, and to put the things in place to make them grow, they went back to the basics, reminding themselves not to be distracted but to focus on what made them who they were. 
The message I'll be preaching on today has a similar and familiar theme. And therefore, the title of my message is Back to Basics. So John writes a letter to a church who are under crisis, facing a crisis. The church is under attack from traveling preachers and traveling missionaries who are coming into their gatherings, who are coming into their homes where they meet, and who are being given a platform and preaching a message that is not what Jesus taught. These preachers have added their own interpretations and are teaching things that are directly opposed to the basics, to the foundations and fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so to help them, John writes this letter, which we're going to read shortly, to remind the church, to remind the believers at that time to hold on to Jesus' teaching, to remember them, to walk in them daily, and to radically, at all costs, protect their faith. The challenges to our faith that we face today are just as great. And my prayer is that today's message will encourage us all not to be led astray from the foundations of our faith, but to walk in truth and love of Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here within our midst. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your word that shines a light onto our path and directs us in the way we should go. We pray that as we hear your word, Lord, Holy Spirit, you will be at work, you will stir our hearts so that it would be like seed falling on rich and nutrient soil and that we will bear fruit, fruit that just won't be here today and tomorrow, but will be permanent and eternal. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the second letter of John to John, and if you don't, the passage will appear on the screen just behind me. So John writes, the elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing to you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. And as you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in this teaching has both the Father 
and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Now, I have much to write to you, but I don't want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister who is chosen by God send their greetings. Now, scholars of the English language often say that one of the great arts of communication and persuasion is repetition. And if you observe when leaders speak or when politicians speak, you see that they repeat the message that they want to convey over and over again so that their audience, the people, get on board with their message. What you do also notice is that they are very skilled at avoiding the very question that you are trying to ask them, but they are adept at communicating what they want to say. We see in Jesus' life that wherever he went, he was constant in what he taught about the kingdom of God. And in the first few verses that we see in John's letter, John adopts the same approach. So in the first seven verses that we read, he uses the words love and truth five times. Clearly, John wants to make a point. And the point is this. Truth and love are important aspects of the Christian faith. But perhaps, more than that, there is something seemingly profound when truth and love operate together. You see, truth and love go hand in hand. Truth and love should be inseparable. And that's because, to quote a phrase used by Gandhi, truth and love are two sides of the same coin. Truth and love are meant to be lived out together. And we see this principle of when God puts two things together throughout the Bible in various different forms. So if we take one example, spirit and word. There are a number of occasions when we read the Bible that we see spirit and word operating together. When we go right back to the beginning of the Bible, the first book, the first chapter, the first three verses of Genesis, it reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So picture the setting. Right at the beginning of creation, the Spirit is hovering. The Spirit is brooding over a formless and empty earth, seemingly poised, seemingly waiting. Up until that point, God had separated the heavens and the earth, but the earth was empty and formless. Then God spoke a word, let there be light. And in that moment, the two powers came together and there was light. Both spirit and word were at work together in creation. We also, know that, we also know that the word of God, the Bible, was written by people who were inspired by the spirit of God. Take another example, faith and deeds. James, in his book, writes, and writes it very plainly and simply so we understand. He says, look, 
What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So faith and action should be inseparable. If we claim to have faith, that will express itself in the steps and in the actions and how we outwork that faith. So when we read the Bible and we see that God has put things together, although those things in themselves are individually important, the fact that they are together actually magnifies their significance. So perhaps what we can do is take the question that James asked about faith and deeds and ask the same question about truth and love. What good is truth by itself if it is not accompanied by love? Or what good is love by itself if it is not accompanied by truth? So when John writes and addresses the church, he goes to great length to remind them about the importance of how these two pillars of the Christian faith work together. And how he does that is he takes them all the way back to what was then a new commandment, but actually became fairly familiar to them that Jesus told his disciples moments before his death. Now, we tend to be a people who are fascinated by the last words that people say as they lie on their deathbed. And there are a number of reasons. Perhaps one of them is because we want to hear those pearls of wisdom that that person has gathered over the years as they share in those dying few moments. Alternatively, it may be that we just want to hear who is going to get what in that well, and we are praying that it's our name. The words they say are carefully chosen because they know that they want to make the most of every remaining opportunity. And some of the most profound quotes that we often hear or that we try and use as principles to live by at times come from people's last words. Many of us in this room would have heard of a man by the name of Steve Jobs, who was the founder of Apple. And I came across an article that had the transcript, apparently, of his last words before he died. And this is what it says. I have reached the pinnacle of success. In others' eyes, my life is an epitome of success. However, apart from work, I have little joy. He goes on to say, God gives us the senses to let us feel the love in everyone's heart, not the illusions brought about by wealth. The wealth I have worn in my life, I cannot bring with me. What I can bring is only those precious memories that are precipitated by love. Treasure love for your family, he says. Love for your spouse and love for your friends. These are such profound words. I personally love the quote that carries a very similar gist that says that no man on their deathbed ever said, I wish I had spent more time in the office than with my friends and with my loved ones. So we tend to pay special attention to what people say before they die. And here, John reminds the church of a commandment that Jesus said in the moments before his death. And this commandment is to love one another. John reminds them about this because love protects. 
See, by loving one another, we protect each other from being led astray from the truth. Solomon, a well-known character in the Bible and the wisest man in his day, wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the Message Bible translation, it phrases it this way. By yourself, you are unprotected. With a friend, you can save the worst. Can you even round up a third person? A three-stranded rope isn't easily snapped. By yourself, you are unprotected. With a friend, you can save the worst. And one of the ways that we protect each other through love is by speaking the truth when it is needed. And as a well-known theologian and preacher phrases it, and this is because truth shapes how we show love and love shapes how we speak the truth. That statement was actually by John Piper. Truth shapes how we show love and love shapes how we speak the truth. So in the church that John was writing to, it was most likely part of their hospitality and custom to entertain, to house, and to host traveling preachers and ministries who, will be, who actually will be traveling around and give them a platform whenever they gather to preach. But what was happening was that some of these preachers and messengers were preaching the message that Jesus Christ was not the Messiah. Now here at King's, we don't face the threat in the situations where we invite someone up on stage and they preach a message that is contrary to what Christ taught. But our challenge today is just as great. See, outside of this room, in the press, in social media, on TV, we are constantly faced with different messages and messengers who are telling us that what they have to say is the truth. And what we notice is that what is proclaimed to be the truth seems to change all the time. So one day, this is the truth. And then you move on to the other day, well, actually, no, this is the truth. And that's because the way we define truth is that we accept truth as being based on facts, on reality, something that is just accepted to be true. Now, since facts change, and since what we accept to be true also changes, truth can also change. So, for example... Many, many centuries and millennials ago, we believed that the world was flat. Today, we know that the world is round. But the passage that John is writing to the church reminds them to follow a truth that does not change. So God says of himself in the book of Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. James, who had spent time and got to know Jesus, wrote... Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus himself, when he came to earth, he boldly proclaimed that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus came to reveal God to us. But Jesus doesn't merely point out the way and teach us the truth. He says, I am the truth. So by accepting Jesus into our lives, we have the truth living and active in us. 
truth, according to what John is trying to convey in this letter, is about wholeness. It's about completeness of the human life. The love that we have for one the love that we have for one another should see us encouraging each other with words that are truthful, that are soaked in love, and that build us up. We should always have each other's back because when we are alone, we are unprotected. I try and challenge myself if I haven't seen someone at church for a while to give them a call and to find out just how they're doing. I also try and pray for people whom I know who are going through difficult circumstances that God will, that God will strengthen them. If I know of someone whom I know is also struggling in the faith, I pray and ask God, God, can you give me the right words to say? Can you show me what to do? To show them love in the same way that I would like to be shown love and I would like to be spoken to. Because without love, truth can be harsh. Truth will give us the information that is difficult to receive. When we follow a list of commands and it becomes just a text box, however good, that doesn't change lives. But love that is shaped by truth does. And this is how John helps the church at that time and helps us define what love is. So in verse 6, he says, look, love is walking in obedience to God's command. And God commands us that we walk in love. He seems to go full circle here. He says, look, this is, this is what love is. Love is that we walk in obedience to the commandments of Jesus. And the commandments of Jesus say that we walk in love. Today, the world holds a view that love is based on emotions. Love is a feeling. And therefore, I love because I feel, or I feel, therefore, I love. In other words, love is a product of however we are feeling at that time. But love is a choice. Love is one of will. It doesn't always come easy because it causes us to deny our natural instincts, and that is to look after our own interests. But the reality which we all know is that people are different. People have different interests. People do things in different ways, sometimes unintentionally, and that upsets us. Naturally, we also know that it is at times difficult to perhaps love someone who isn't the same as you. But the love we are called to show is not based on how we feel. It is a decision. It is a daily decision. In fact, it is a decision that we probably make at different moments throughout the day. Until we are ultimately completely consumed and transformed and motivated to love people with real affection that comes from genuine Christian love. You see, our will becomes predisposed. It leans towards giving ourselves away and caring for one another. This is what real love is. And this is what Jesus came to show. So in the first book of John, 1 John, he writes again to the church to say, look, 
This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has any material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need that has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? The love that Jesus expects us to show goes beyond what we generally understand the love to be. Because today at times when we talk about love, we also talk about and think of it in terms of just tolerance. Tolerance is showing love. Now, whilst tolerance is, is, is certainly an attribute of love, the difference is that as believers and as Christians, we show tolerance, we show acceptance, but we do not compromise what we believe to be true. Love, when it isn't joined by truth, is just sentimentality. It supports us, it affirms us, but actually it doesn't cause us to change the things that we need to face that we have to change. And so the, and so the, the question that we face as Christians is, look, how do we show the world how love and truth work together? Because in all honesty, when we are truthful about what we believe we can be perceived as being unloving and intolerant. But Jesus in the Bible shows us on many, many occasions how we can bring truth and that truth is received. And the way he consistently showed us is through love. There are several stories in the Bible where we see that Jesus would meet people's needs through acts of love first and then he will speak the truth into their lives. The story of the woman who was caught in adultery, who was brought to Jesus, and the Pharisees demanded, they upheld the law, they upheld the truth, and they said, look, she needs to face the consequences of her action. But in that story, we see the perfect example shown to us by Jesus of how he showed her love by first saving her life and then speaking truth into her life to say, go and sin no more. When we carry out acts of kindness to each other, we show support. We are there when someone needs us. We show consideration in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words. All these acts of love, they pave the way for people to receive the truth, and for us to be able to tell the truth. Because when truth and love operate together, we sow the seeds of winning lives back to Jesus. Now, in John's letter, John touches on a number of things. One of the key points that he wants to get across is that we should hold on to the truth to prevent ourselves being led astray. He is warning the church facing a crisis that they need to save themselves from people who are coming with a different message. But I believe John's letter is also more than that because love is a double-edged tool. John is not only writing to the church 
to show them how love can protect them. But John's also telling the church about how love, how loving one another also attracts and draws people to Jesus. You see, love is about redemption, bringing people back to Jesus. And in the passage that he uses in verse 5 and 6, he takes it from the time that Jesus is telling the disciples and which in the second half of what Jesus was saying in John 13, 35, Jesus says, look, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When we love one another, we are displaying Jesus to a world in need of genuine, selfless, sacrificial love, and that is not just tolerance. We don't need to look far in the world to realize that people are searching for those who would love them into being better than themselves and to support them and to stand them with them wherever they are. So to use a phrase and a question from a song sung by a band called the Black Eyed Peas, where is the love? I would suggest that the Bible shows us and teaches that love should come from us, his church, his body. When people see what true love looks like, they will be drawn to it because love attracts. In the book of Acts, there is a strong correlation between two verses that just seem to appear in the flow. In Acts chapter 2, verse 44, which talks about not just how the church was formed, but also how the church grew, it says, And they shared everything that they had with each other. And then three verses later, it goes on to say that, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There is a cause and effect scenario here, a correlation between those two statements, but that actually all work together. And it is this, when the people at that time saw how the believers loved and cared for each other, when nothing they owned they considered as theirs, but they considered as something to be shared, and they heard the news that was being preached and it was consistent with what they were seeing, they gave their lives to Jesus and they joined with the believers at that time. The ultimate purpose of love is redemptive in its nature. To win God's creation, us, back to himself. This is why God, our loving and heavenly father, showed in the greatest act of love by sending his own son Jesus to die for us so that we can have the rightful and his originally intended relationship for us to walk day by day in his presence and with him. So let us hold on. Let us hold on unwaveringly to the truth of Jesus and not be distracted by the different versions of truth that we hear out there. Let truth shape how we show love and let us allow love to shape how we speak the truth. And as we do this, as we lay our lives down for each other, we will find people begin to be drawn 
to the fragrance of love that is coming from the church and which they are so longing for. Amen? I'm going to ask the band to come up in a minute, but before that, I'm just going to pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for the love that you had for us, that you sent the one who was so dear to you to come and to die for us. Jesus, we thank you that you consciously made the decision to lay your life down for us, to show us what true love is. And you ask us to do the same. But I thank you that you did not leave us alone to do that. You sent your precious Holy Spirit to come and live in us, who helps us and enables us in all things. So we pray that today, tomorrow, and each day from here, you will fill us afresh. You will fill us anew until we overflow with your love so that we can be carriers and messengers of the love and the truth of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.